You're listening to audio from Gospel Collective Church. If you'd like to check out additional resources or learn more about us, please visit gcclex.com. Well, my name is Joey Fink. I serve as the executive pastor here at Gospel Collective. If you're a guest with us, would you grab one of these welcome cards in the chair back in front of you? Fill that out. Drop that in the offering box on the way out. We'd love to help you get connected, us get to connect to you. But please, if you would, fill that out, drop it out. And then also, um, uh, today is the first Sunday that Pastor Eric is on his sabbatical, and so he'll be out for five weeks, which he's not very good at. He's already here uh, in worship uh, this morning, uh, but it, be, continue to pray for he and his family during that time. I'll be preaching three of those five weeks pretty much every other week. Uh, through that. And we're going to continue on in our series today. Uh, If you want to mark your place as we get prepared, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8, as well as um, as we enter into uh, our time in the Word, that it is going, I want to tell you where we're going to. At the end, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper and communion together. And my hope is that this sermon is maybe uniquely prepared, maybe even more so than a normal week, to take us to that place uh, where we would uh, commune with the Lord, we would remember the Lord, uh, we would delight and worship the Lord and recognize the Lord for who he is. So let me uh, pray for us and then we'll get to work. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning thanking you and praising you as we've studied the book of Hebrews, how you've revealed yourself to us. We pray that through your Holy Spirit this morning uh, that we would gain a larger picture of how majestic you are and in turn that our worship would grow, Uh, our response and faithful living would grow, our response And living according to your callings and purposes in our life would grow. And to cooperate with you in your mission and sending of us. And so we praise you and pray that you would bless this morning now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So I do want to start. Have you ever been to a city, maybe even here in town or a large city, where you come to a restaurant or a business of some type, and they make uh, kind of an audacious, unverifiable statement, like, we have the best pizza in the world, or the best burger, or my, you know, the favorite dessert of our city. Well, who verifies these things, and who took a poll? Has anyone ever been asked? No. You've never been called about this pizza place and said, this is your favorite. I want to show you a quick video to illustrate this. best cup of coffee immediately followed by this underwhelming realization that that's not true. And I'm not sure who voted. I'm thinking the vote was everyone in that room and maybe a family member of who owned it. And so this exaggerated claim 
But today as we study Hebrews uh, chapter 8, we will see that when Jesus makes a claim, it's actually an understatement. That he far exceeds all claims that have ever been made about him. All things that have ever come before him, all things that have existed, a clear statement that Jesus is better. So let me read for you from Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And it is a lengthy passage, so uh, if you can, uh, get ready, do your stretches. We're going to dig in and read this together. Now, the point, and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. But if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy, a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the new covenant he mediates is better since he enacted it on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now this uh, reference here is, is a direct quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he, he makes the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So in verse 1, we see this statement. Now the point of what we are saying is this. It is a, a direct summary of all that has been happening leading up. So all the sermons we've had over the last many weeks got to this one summary statement. And as a preacher, as a pastor, we love moments like this. Because you're always looking for what is the point of the text. And it says right here. Now here's the point of everything we've said. A very direct, specific statement. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. So the first point this morning, as we look at the idea that Jesus is better, is directly to what we've heard over the last seven chapters. That Jesus is a better high priest and a better 
king. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I would encourage you to go back and listen to those sermons if, if, if we want to continue to build out that idea or re refresh it. Um, but it is clear. This is the main point uh, leading up to this point, that Jesus is a better high priest and Jesus is a better king, that he is supreme and above all, he is superior. And it's not even close. I, I like the idea here, and I kind of read into it an inflection, uh, an attitude when it says, here's the main point. We just kind of read that in our same monotone, but I think of it as almost like, a, 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 you know, a, a, a loud, direct moment to say, now here's the point, as though with a little bit of attitude and, and vigor to make this statement that Jesus is better in all ways and in all things. And so when you look at this, it's almost like a, a mic drop moment. Because if you think about it in that way, Jesus sat down on the throne. Now, if you were to make a statement and you sit down, you're saying there's nothing else to say. That's the end of the point. That's all there is. There is it is complete. It is finished. It is declared. It is established. It is fulfilled. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection. He made this direct, bold statement and sat down saying there's no other statement that needs to be said because I have said it and I have said it ultimately. So there is this summary, but it's more than just a summary. It is a statement, a claim that here is the point that Jesus is a better priest and a better king. So this statement that Jesus is better occurs directly in the book of Hebrews 13 times. That Jesus is better. I mean, exact words. Jesus is better. And then it goes on to, to show what he is better than. Pretty much everything that has come before him in the Old Testament, that Jesus is a better version of that. And if you go indirectly, there are dozens more. So those are the direct things that are made in contrast. But then another few dozen more were an indirect contrast where he makes reference that Jesus is better than. And this goes on really to be the theme almost entirely of the book of Hebrews. The supremacy of Christ, but that Jesus is supreme over all that has come before. And here there's a language that is carried out, this, this kingship language. That he is on the throne, that he, it refers to the scepter. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, it says, After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's reference to the kingdom, the eternal reign, and the order of Melchizedek, the priest king. And I preached on um, Hebrews chapter 4 directly about that. Uh, go back and look at the reference to high priest and how Jesus is portrayed as a better high priest. So again, not to go long on this, but one final word. I want to read for you a passage from 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 11 through 14. And to set the stage of what's happening in this passage, this is when the tabernacle has been built. And they're having a ceremony to, to, uh, to, to basically open it, and the Spirit of God comes onto it in, in a, an amazing way. And this is the, um, you know, this opening ceremony of 
the, the, the temple, or, the, or I'm sorry, the tabernacle. And the glory of God fills the temple. So uh, starting in verse 11, it says this. It should be on the screens. When the priest came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves as to prepare for this moment without regard to divisions. And all of the Levitical singers, and it lists them there, and their sons and kinsmen clothed in fine linen with cymbals and harps and lyres standing east of the altar and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets. And in unison with the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to the praise and to the glory of God. And when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud to represent the, the direct presence of God. Now listen to this. This is why I bring this. Other than that's an amazing sight to, to think on. Verse 14. So the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house. So in these instances, both Jesus the high priest sits down. And you see here all the priests sitting down. Now, they're sitting are drastically different. One is Jesus sitting on the throne as a victorious king ruling and reigning. The other is that the priest's knees became weak and wobbly and gave out when they encountered the presence of God so significantly they had to sit down. So when Jesus makes reference to being a greater high priest, it's not even in comparison. The other's knees won't even hold up in the presence of God. And he is God seated on the throne. I don't, it gets me excited. Maybe it's the idea that I'm a pastor or a priest or, uh, in, in some fashion in this way. And I think of, of myself coming into the presence of God. I can imagine my knees going out. You know, with fear and trembling, trembling, I come to the word each week and I feel a version of that before you. I sound kind of confident, but my knees are, are weak every, every time I come to preach because we are encountering the presence of God and the word of God and how significant. Now only magnify and multiply that infinitely to be in the throne room of God. Jesus seated on the throne. Jesus is a better priest and a better king. Let us continue on to verse 2. There he ministers in the heavenly tabernacle, the true place of worship that was built by the Lord and not by human hands. Even back to verse 1 that says, ministering in the holy places. That Jesus is a better minister and a better tabernacle. Have you ever thought about what Jesus is doing now? Have you ever thought about that? Because oftentimes we think of Jesus specifically during his earthly ministry. From the time of the incarnation when he comes on the scene as a, as a, as a child, a baby, being born into the world. And then we, we, we see him all the way through him, him growing and his ministry and miracles and the validation that occurs. 
uh, his preaching and his active ministry years to the Passion Week, to the, uh, the, the crucifixion and the, and the glorious resurrection, all the way leading up to the ascension. And then what do we think of at that moment? What's Jesus doing now? And I think sometimes in our minds, we maybe fill in the gap with some, some of our best thoughts, or, or we combine them together with maybe what the Holy Spirit's doing and, and, and what God is doing in, in heaven. But it's, a, it's a, a very neat thought to consider that Jesus is sustaining all things by the power of his word and reconciling all things unto himself, waiting for the right time to fully consummate the kingdom. But other than that, he's doing even more. He is ministering. He is ministering to us even this day. So the idea that, that he, at that moment, was immediately seated at the right hand of God, at the throne of God, and we see that the Holy Spirit reveals to us Jesus, this deity, his salvation, his work and truth, his ministry and his mission. Jesus is now on the throne advocating, as we talked about over the last several weeks, to the Father on our behalf, and that he is interceding to the Father on our behalf. The Bible shows us that he is speaking in Romans 8, 34. He is at the right hand of God interceding for us, praying, talking to God on our behalf. So what's he doing now? He's seated on the throne talking to God on our behalf. He's ministering to us that through the Holy Spirit, we might experience the sustaining presence, power, and ministry of Jesus onto us. That's a crazy thought. He is advocating to the Father on our behalf. And he, as it says that he always lives to intercede for us. So as Jesus is compared to these earthly priests, Jesus is a better tabernacle as well. Not built by man's hands, but by God himself. In 1 Kings chapter 6, it gives this beautiful description of the temple being built and, and, and adorned with gold and all the dimensions and, and how beautiful the holy temple was. It was also destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans under Emperor Titus. And so as we think that Jesus is a better tabernacle, we must look through the lens that he is now in the holy place, seated on the throne. And so he is better, even than the temple, even better than the tent. And not only do we think about it physically, but we think about it spiritually now. Jesus, it says in John chapter 1, dwelt among us. That word that he is dwelling among us is that he tabernacled among us. That he is with us in the incarnation. And then we see an even further crazy thought in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. That we are the temple of the living God. So now the spirit of God living inside of us. So and always from all directions Jesus is a better minister and a better tabernacle. His kingdom will have no end. He will rule forever, and the Lord can be trusted in all that he says, and he is loyal in all that he does. 
So his dwelling place will never end. It will be eternal and always. So Jesus is that better minister and tabernacle. As we continue down to verse 3, And since every high priest is required to offer gifts and sacrifices, our high priest must make an offering too. If he is here on earth, he would not even be a priest, since he, there already are priests to offer up gifts required by the law. They serve in the system of worship only as a copy, a shadow of the real one in heaven. So Jesus is a better gift giver, he's a better sacrifice, and he's a better savior. I love that language there, that all other versions of the gifts or sacrifice or atoning works, they were all just kind of like a shadow, just kind of like a copy. Um, my wife and I have this debate often, and I'm assuming, I believe all married couples, there, there's one of these and one of the other in, in every marriage. You go to the grocery store and you come to an aisle and there's choices everywhere. And there's someone in the marriage who thinks that you should always buy the name brand. And there's someone in the marriage who thinks you should always buy the generic or store brand and say that they're the same thing. My wife would say, let's buy the cheaper one. Let, they're the same thing. I'm like, no, let's buy. You can taste the difference. You know what the real thing is. Agreed? Y'all know about Give me a little head nod knowing I'm not the only one here. Well, here's the deal. Everyone who thinks that the name brand's better, you're right. And everyone other, no, I'm teasing. Thank you for your stewardship and uh, discretion, <laughs> darling. Uh, but that same mentality as we look on the idea that there's a copy, a shadow, it, it, it's a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing as we think of Jesus being a better gift and a better savior, a better sacrifice. It's, it's kind of like those things, you knew they were good, but they expired or they were temporary. But when Jesus gives a gift, so hear this in Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's a better gift giver. But the gift is not like the trespass, for, the, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Elsewhere, Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And once made perfect, he became the source of our eternal salvation for all who obey. We saw that in Hebrews chapter 5 and last week in Hebrews 7. Therefore, he is able to completely save those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. And walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So when you think of these sacrifices that were made, they were insufficient. They were temporary. They would have to be redone. But Jesus' sacrifice was a once and for all sacrifice. That's why he sat down. That's why it was completed. That's why it was finished. And so he is a better sacrifice, and ultimately because of that, a better Savior. 
as we look down uh, to verses uh, starting at the end of verse 5 there, we see a picture where Moses is brought into the conversation. For when Moses was getting ready to build the tabernacle, God gave him this warning. Be sure that you make everything according to the, the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. And so bringing up the name of Moses was a big deal. And so here this, there's a statement directly and implicit that Jesus says that he is a better Moses, a better prophet, a better Passover, and a better Exodus. Because in this, to bring up the name of Moses, Moses was the most significant character in the Old Testament. So to bring up his name to us seems like, oh, that's just another name of, of an Old Testament person or, or, you know, people in the history of, 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 of God and, 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 and Israel. Uh, but it was more than that. So Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Like when you read Genesis, that's Moses writing. When you read Exodus, that's actually Moses' kind of autobiography happening. He wrote the Torah, the law. And so to bring up Moses and to say and compare Moses, and then when Jesus makes a statement to being a better Moses, he's saying that he's a better Moses, a better prophet. Well, what else did Moses do? He led God's people out of slavery and almost into the promised land. But he brought them through the Red Sea. He delivered them. So Jesus is a better deliverer. And so to bring up the name of Moses is a, a significant statement. Because not only is Jesus a better Moses, he's a better everything that Moses was. He's a better lawgiver. You see that Jesus wrote and sustains. He fulfills the law. We see Jesus as a better Passover. Because in him, we experience not only the dealing with sin, but the satisfying of sin in his sacrificial death. And then we see deliverance, deliverance from sin, deliverance from slavery, a better exodus. Jesus is all of these things. He is a better Moses. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament that God would redeem his people in a way that would eclipse the exodus from Egypt. The exodus of Israel from Egypt was not only to, de de to deliver them from slavery, but also to free them to worship the living God. So Jesus as a better exodus, he delivers us from the chains of Satan and the chains of sin and enables us to worship Jesus, to worship God in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is a better Moses and all the things that Moses did. So as we continue on, the rest of this section, we're going to be looking how Jesus is a better covenant. And that'll kind of take us through the last part of the sermon here. Uh, but Jesus, starting in, in verse 6, uh, we pick up on this language 
uh, of a covenant. So let me start uh, reading and unpacking there. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it was enacted on better promises. For that first covenant, if it had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second. So the Bible and all of redemptive history can best be seen as a series of covenants. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to try to give you a crash course in covenantal theology. But God makes a promise, and it's even more than that, a covenant, uh, a partnership that exists between two parties. And he does this several times throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, throughout redemptive history. And uh, depending on which camp you talk to, um, but we would say very clearly that there are five covenants uh, that we see as a backbone for telling the story of redemptive history. The first starting with Noah, where God makes a promise after the flood that he will no longer destroy humanity uh, for the sin that they have done, but he will in that partner with them and go about the process of redeeming them. And he commands them to go and to fill and to rule in the world. So that's the covenant he made with Noah. Continuing in this crash course, he then goes to make a covenant with Abraham. And he enters into this redemptive partnership. And it happens in Genesis 12, 15, 17. And he promises Abraham a huge family that will inherit the promised piece of land in Cana and bring universal blessing to all humanity through his family. On from there, the the, the Mosaic Covenant, or a covenant that occurs with Israel. God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt and, and makes him his own treasured possession, a holy, set-apart nation, and he will personally d dwell in their midst and bring them into the promised land. He will be their God, and they will be his people, Israel. Moreover, they will be a kingdom of priests, that mediate his goodness and glory to all nations, an epic role in redemptive history. That is followed by a promise, a covenant that God makes with David, that on the throne of David will sit a king whose reign and rule will never end, an eternal king. And we know Jesus to be that direct answer to that covenant who was in the line of David, who now sits, we, we read literally here in the first two verses of chapter 8, who is fulfilling the Davidic covenant, who is God seated on the throne. And then lastly, this new covenant, a better covenant. And the new covenant is the culmination of God's saving work of his people. He promises to make an everlasting promise with his people in which he will write his law on their heart and bring for complete forgiveness of sin and put his spirit in them to empower them to love and obey his commandments, to raise up a faithful king in Jesus to rule over them and to bring back into the land and unify and, and reunify them into one people, a royal priesthood. Once they were not a people, but now they are, and cause them to be the light to all nations. And there is no stipulation to this new covenant. 
It is unconditional. It is a covenant of grace. God both gives the promises and fulfills the promise. So it is his work entirely through his saving and sustaining power. So he cites here Jeremiah chapter 1 verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. Verse 10. And I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach one another uh, his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. And I will be merciful towards their iniquities. So this new covenant is established. The author here of Hebrews takes for granted that Jesus has inaugurated and promised the new covenant by way in saying that Jesus is a better covenant maker and covenant keeper. That all the old covenants, although they were good, did have fault, did have weakness. And so now a better forever covenant. It simply means that these ideas and sacrifice and feasts and rituals and promises of the Old Testament were incomplete. Maybe better said that they were preparatory. They were preparing for the perfect covenant. They were a foreshadowing of this new covenant. And I love the way it ends, and this is the way I will uh, end uh, today. It says in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So uh, last week I lost my cell phone and I had an old cell phone at home that I used. It was a, a, literally a flip phone. Uh, and I used it for a few days to get by. And I began to think through, imagine the history of technology. And as a new technology comes on, how the old becomes obsolete. And uh, you remember, uh, I mean, imagine where it started in humanity with like a telegraph and then eventually a telephone, uh, a rotary phone. Imagine explaining that to kids today. Anybody here old enough to remember a party line? A briefcase cell phone. So I remember my mom worked in the medical field, and I don't know why she needed it, but it was so important enough that she had this, what looked like the nuclear launch codes, a briefcase that she would carry in the front seat, and inside of it was this cell phone that, with the big, you know, springy cord, and, and she would talk on that, and that was only followed and, and, and upstaged by the Zach Morris phone that was soon to follow. And then any, anybody here have a pager? I had a pager. Yeah, that was it. You were the stuff if you had a pager. Followed by AIM instant message. And we see now the flip phone and, and, and the development of camera phone and a Blackberry. And then the moment of the iPhone came, right? And everything prior to it was obsolete. 
You know that one day we'll look back on the iPhone and it will be obsolete? Isn't that crazy to think? All technologies. Think about the way we've listened to music. Victrola, then the radio, jukebox, a record player, an eight-track. Somebody explain that to your kids later. A cassette tape, a CD. How do you explain what a CD is? Then a flash drive, an MP3 player, then downloading music to your computer, then streaming services, airdropping. And now it's even crazier. We have Bluetooth and wireless headphones. So we have little pieces of plastic and metal, little white ones usually, that people put into their ears and music wirelessly comes into your ears. This is crazy, right? And so everything before it becomes obsolete. So when we talk about that Jesus is better, it's not that he was better by a little bit. It says that he was so much better that the things that were before him are obsolete. And it says they're, they're growing old and even fading away. Jesus is so much better. And so I conclude with this. Jesus is better. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is a better king. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is a better tabernacle, a better temple. Jesus is a better minister, a better fulfillment of the law, a better mediator. He is better than Adam. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than Aaron. He is better than Noah. Jesus is a better than Abraham, a better Moses. He is better than David. He is a better prophet. He is a better covenant maker. He is a better covenant keeper. Jesus is a better promise, a better gift giver. Jesus is a better sacrifice, a better savior, a better hope. And in all things, Jesus is better. And so I appeal to you today and leave you with this, that whatever is going on in your life, whatever circumstance, on your hardest day, Jesus is better. On your best day, Jesus is better. On moments of need, Jesus is better. On moments of plenty, Jesus is better. In moments of loss and pain and grief, Jesus is better. In moments where you're surrounded with all the great blessings of life, Jesus is better. 